0: We are, uh, as as Stuart mentioned last week, taking a break from the book of Acts uh, till the fall. We'll resume with Acts chapter 10 and our exposition of that book. I hope that you have been enjoying that study as much as I have. It has just been wonderful to look at the early church as it is unfolding in the book of Acts and Luke's account there. But for This week and the rest of the weeks of the summer, we're going to take up some some topical messages, some things that I've been mulling over in my mind and and things that I hope um, that as I've been working through the scripture on these things that are helpful to you as well. At any given moment, you and I can, can pick up our phones and be bombarded instantly with video and images of horrific violence and hatred. I can become an eyewitness to shootings or beatings, to car crashes, to deadly fires, to to people screaming obscenities at one another or showing disregard for the lives of other people. I I can read the agonizing details about a terrible accident that took a small child's life, or I can read with sadness the account of some elderly person who died all alone in their home. In an instant, I can go on the internet and, and, and see God mocked and evil, celebrated. I can read opinions from anonymous sources on the internet that uh, no doubt raise my blood pressure when I read them. In real time, I can see statements from governing authorities that are caustic and cruel and divisive and mocking and yes some of them are from our president but he is by no means alone in this manner of communicating on the internet if i if i don't put the phone away or close the laptop or at some point shut off the tv i We'll be overwhelmed at some level with this flood of unrighteousness, unholiness, and ungodliness that will tempt me toward anger or bitterness or at minimum simply becoming callous and, and scrolling onward and continuing to look at stuff. The breadth of stuff that's out there is an awful lot for our minds to process, for us to understand and then do something with in some way. And so what I want to do for this week and next... Theologians would put this under the category of of biblical anthropology, anthropology being the study of man. Biblical anthropology would say, we we want to understand man from the Bible's perspective. And And I want us to think about man and some of his limitations, not the least of which is in this area of knowledge, where we are tempted to often think we know more than we do, to exalt our own knowledge, to not know some of the things that we should there's a host of topics under biblical anthropology that we could talk about, but this week man's knowledge, next week man's depravity, man's evil and and, and how those things bear on on our current culture, and I I want to spend a week on each of these two for two reasons. One is, as believers, we should take up subjects like these, man's knowledge, man's evil. We We should take them up from time to time simply to run them back through Scripture and see what God says about them. We believe from a Christian worldview that ultimately our understanding about man is only correct, is only full if if indeed we know the Creator, if we understand man from what God describes, if we read from his perspective and study human beings as he has described us because he has made us. Secondly, we take up these things because you and I are... are are always susceptible to the creep of unbiblical thinking because we are surrounded by a culture that doesn't frame things in a biblical worldview that simply says what feels right, what what, what sounds right to them in the moment. And so that sort of godless thinking is around us and we see it and hear it and, and so we need to critically think about it in terms of a biblical point of view as we evaluate our world. Let me give you an example of this last point on the subject of knowledge and the capacity of man's ability to understand, to comprehend the breadth of man's knowledge or the lack thereof and the limitations of his knowledge. I suspect we've all heard the phrase, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. It it goes way back before Thomas Jefferson, but Jefferson used it on several occasions when he was making the case for the establishment of a state university here in Virginia. In 1817, Jefferson wrote to the governor of Virginia, urging for the establishment of a university near Charlottesville. We, we know where that school is now, not far from, from where Jefferson was in Charlottesville. And in this letter, his tone was actually mocking toward state lawmakers because he was concerned that this might not happen. And he wrote, my hopes, my hopes for this university are kept in check by the ordinary character of our state legislatures, the members of which do not generally possess information enough to perceive the important truths. Mind you, Jefferson is, is mocking here. I, I don't think they get this. I don't think they're smart enough to understand these important truths. And here they are, that knowledge is power, that knowledge safety, and that knowledge is happiness. Jefferson used that phrase, knowledge is power, on several occasions, particularly in this context. He used it even on a subsequent letter alongside of the phrase, ignorance is weakness. Knowledge is power, ignorance is weakness. Now, we know there's both reality and there's illusion from a biblical perspective in terms of what Jefferson is saying. He advocated for a university for the same reason that most parents advocate for a good education for their children, because we understand that it is important that God has made us with the capacity to think and reason, and therefore it is good to learn, to to read, to write, to solve problems. All of that has benefit. But the illusion really rests around man's sort of expectations, of of just how knowledgeable he can be or is and what he can do with that knowledge and how he processes life on account of it. Genesis chapter 2 is where I want to begin this morning, and we'll have several passages in the Old Testament and then move into the New. But Genesis 2, creation account, how God makes man as he has made the universe. Genesis 2, 7 says... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and this man became a living creature. There is no more humbling account of human origins than this one in Genesis 2-7. And that is the God who is overall creates this massive universe of which we are only barely scratched the surface and, and begin to understand the scope of. He creates this massive universe and reaches down into the dust of one of the planets in this universe and takes a handful of it and breathes life into it. It is a description that speaks to us of our utter reliance on God, the fact that we are accountable to him, that we are fully dependent on him, and the manner of that relationship to the creator that says he has the right to rule. He has the right to establish his law, to say this is my universe, you are my creation, and this is my law, and we are called to obey that. When God created Adam, he places him in the center of what is paradise it is perfection a garden called Eden and God says to Adam this is how it will be Genesis two fifteen. the Lord God took the man put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die God set Adam in the midst of sinless perfection. Adam enjoys communion with God. And then God creates Eve. And together the man and the woman live in perfect, blissful harmony. The the kind of sinless perfection that, that you and I cannot begin to fathom what that was like. And they have just one prohibition. Do not eat from the fruit from this one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will die. Other than that, the garden is here for your enjoyment. God does not say much about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we understand it both from the prohibition he gives, but then also from Satan's interaction with Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, then... The eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What the devil told Eve is, God is keeping you from this particular tree because God knows that once you eat from this particular tree, your eyes will be opened. You will not only find its fruit to be delightful, but your eyes will be opened and your knowledge will be like his. That's the the bait that, that Satan uses in this temptation. Eat from this tree and you will have knowledge and you will be like God. And God's trying to deprive you of that. Genesis 3 goes on to say that when they ate the fruit, sure enough, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and now they had a knowledge of something they hadn't known previously. They felt shame. Suddenly, evil now was real to them, and they, they felt mortified and they were shameful. Look at Genesis 3:22 says, "The Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil." Now, eating the fruit did not change their roles. Adam did not become God, and, and God did not lower himself and, and was not brought down to Adam's level. The creator was still the creator, and the man and the woman were still created being subject to the rule of God. But their innocence was shattered. They now experienced a knowledge that they hadn't had previously, and they felt shame. The statement, ignorance is bliss, was probably never truer than it was for Adam and Eve in that state before they ate of the fruit, when they lived in perfect delight and happiness. But as one theologian puts it, Adam wanted to be emancipated from God's authority. Even though he he didn't even fully grasp what it meant to be in submission to God's authority, he didn't fully understand what that was at that point, Adam and Eve came to the conclusion that if, if the fruit of this tree can make it so that we can know what to do and what not to do without having to rely on God, without having to ask anyone else, we will just know, we will have knowledge, then that was was enough. This becomes the start of man's unending, foolish quest for omniscience. Knowledge, perfect knowledge, omniscience, belongs solely to God. It means perfect and complete knowledge. 1 John three twenty says God knows everything, even our hearts. He understands what's going on inside of us in terms of motives and desires. He is omniscient. The temptation for us in this day is to, to think that with, with all that we have at our fingertips with all of the, the speed and the breadth of technology, that that can give us a front row seat to, to see and to know almost anything. The Internet's flood of information gives us the illusion like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I can know everything about almost anything because it's all right there. What, what can't we learn from a Google search, Right? What, what judgments can't we make from simply watching a video? Is anything really hidden from our eyes? It's all right there. And like Thomas Jefferson, we can, we can foolishly believe that, that simply acquiring knowledge means power and safety and happiness. Scripture warns of this attitude repeatedly because man continues, just like Adam and Eve, to repeat this sort of sinful tendency to believe, if I only had more knowledge, I would be like God or I would be satisfied or I would know all of the answers. Solomon deals with it in the book of Ecclesiastes when he he describes his own pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and he uses that, that Hebrew word we talked about several years ago when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, that word hebel, that idea of something that is fleeting. It's like the wind. It's, it's there and we see it, but then it's gone. And, and, and the satisfaction it gives is brief, and then it is disappearing, slipping away. And in Ecclesiastes 1.18, he wrote, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I think any of us can relate to that. The, the more we see, the more we experience the more that we take in of the world around us, the more troubling the world seems to become, the more vexing things are. Now, Listen, Solomon was not arguing for ignorance. He was not arguing against the pursuit of knowledge because he simply go to the book of Proverbs and the same man, Solomon, is pleading with his son to direct his heart, apply his heart to the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. So, so which is it? The Solomon who finds this pursuit of knowledge to be hebel, fleeting, or the one who's telling his son, apply your heart to gain wisdom and knowledge. The the, the thing is, what Solomon had learned is that knowledge is not an end in and of itself. Proverbs explains that the, the ultimate goal in acquiring knowledge is to better know the mind and the will of God. That we are to pursue knowledge, but we are to do so on the basis of, of pursuing the knowledge of God. That's why Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's, it's discernment. It's, it's prudence. If I will know God, I will gain in, in being able to perceive things around me better and discern good from evil. Acquiring knowledge simply to know more stuff does not change our hearts where the, where the conflicts brew, where the desires bubble up. Acquiring knowledge doesn't change our hearts. As a matter of fact, it works the other way around. Our hearts distort knowledge. They take what is true and they suppress it or they twist it or they lie about it. It is the heart of man that suppresses the knowledge of God. That's what Romans 1 says, that there is clear, evident truth of God's existence. And yet the heart of man changes that knowledge. Psalm 19, the, heart, the heavens declare the glory of God and yet man in his presumption of brilliance looks to the stars and the sky and says this all just sort of spontaneously erupted out of, out of nothing. We don't really know. It's certainly not God, though. we ruled him out. The heart of man creates lies and tries to use its knowledge to replace God. And again... It's all throughout the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. The Lord brings this charge against his people that they are being faithless, that they are being hateful, that they are being hateful toward one another and even toward God himself. They are being violent. And in Hebrews 4, 6, God says familiar words, my people are destroyed for lack of what? Lack of knowledge. It's not, again, talking about them just being sort of book smart and eloquent at this point. Because the the irony here is the people didn't feel that they were lacking knowledge; they believed they had everything they need. They assumed they had plenty of knowledge. Hebrews four twelve explains that to us that 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 they were getting their answers, at least that they thought were their answers, by looking to idols. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff. That that piece of wood they walk around with gives them oracles. It 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 it's where they they go to to get ideas and where they're told about God, or at least that's their perception. They're getting their answers. They believe they could find the answers to what they needed in life from inanimate objects. Now, before we look at that and think, oh, well, that was primitive generations years ago, is it possible that we've traded that piece of wood for a glass screen from which we look for all the answers that we expect to, to tell us everything we need to know? To make matters worse, in Hosea's day, chapter 4 goes on to say that the the priests and the prophets, the very ones who were expected to teach the truth to people, actually were were leading people astray because they had rejected the knowledge of God and forgotten his law. Because they rejected the knowledge of God, the knowledge that they were advocating for was worldly knowledge. It was sinful knowledge, and and, and they are leading people astray. So there's plenty of knowledge to go around And the people themselves did not like the call that they were being ignorant or foolish because they didn't think they were. They were determined to be knowledgeable and to have all the answers, but just not from God, just not going to be told what to do, not going to be told what to believe. They wanted knowledge and they wanted it on their own terms. God brings this condemnation back again in Isaiah 47 to his people speaking judgment. He says, you lovers of pleasure who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. That, that, that is as relevant today as it was in Isaiah's day that man has this attitude that I, I am everything I need. I am self-sustaining. I am. I am most important. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah 47, God said, you felt secure in your wickedness, you said... No one sees me, your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. He is talking about the arrogance of man's thinking. That I I know everything I need to know, and I know that I'm what matters most. And he has dismissed the knowledge of God. All over Scripture are the warnings of these twin dangers of. First of all, man's lack of knowledge of the things of God that he desperately needs to know in order to rightly understand creation and himself. He lacks knowledge about the things of God. And yet, at the same time, he has this inflated sense of his own knowledge, this arrogant belief that he knows everything there is to know. And he can define God and decide about God based on what his own perceptions are. One more Old Testament reference. Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet wrote, there is none like you, O Lord. This is what we were singing before. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your, your, your due. You are worthy of our awe, of our fear. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And then he says, they are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Here's Jeremiah looking at Jerusalem and seeing the people and seeing their leaders. He's looking at God and going, God, there's none like you. You are are greatness. You are perfect. All should fear you. And instead, they, they don't even know you. And they're turning to idols for answers. They're filling their minds with the foolish things of the world at the expense of the knowledge of you. New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is dealing in Corinth with with false teaching that keeps creeping in that says, hey, it's it's all about the pursuit of wisdom. This is Greek thinking, you know, just just gain, become wise, become a very wise person and wisdom will save you. And, and, And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 wrote, about the gospel, He called it the word of the cross. The word of the cross, he said, is foolishness to those who are perishing. The world looks at the gospel of Jesus Christ, which begins with the premise that there is a creator God to whom we are accountable and that we are sinners in need of salvation and says, oh, that's foolish. We're not that bad. He's not that great. Something in between has got to work out. The idea that that the Son of God would be perfect and would give himself on the cross in sacrifice of his own life in order to save us from our sins, that's foolishness. Paul says that's why this this salvation cannot be attained by by man simply knowing worldly knowledge. He says, yet rather it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God is, is, is saving you and I to make a very point to the world about how he, he chooses the weak and the foolish in order to demonstrate his own greatness and his power and our frailty and our limitations. If we are looking to the world apart from God to try to understand ourselves, our desires, our hearts, our habits, our addictions, our marriages, our relationships, if we are looking to the world apart from God, to try to find the answers on all of that stuff, we are doomed to this endless, foolish quest to acquire knowledge, this this sort of false sense of omniscience that tells us I've I've got all the answers I need. This little device right here, it just, it's got everything. If, If we think we can know everything we need apart from the knowledge of God, we are doomed. So, let me, let me give you two applications. where I want to go with all this. Just two brief applications on the subject of man's knowledge. Let me summarize them first: we must, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must increase in our knowledge of God. We must increase in our knowledge of God, and secondly, it's because of this, we must humbly, regularly acknowledge our own limitations and frailty, the, the holes, the weakness in our own knowledge. We must increase in the knowledge of God as he has revealed himself to us in scripture. The apostle Paul, often in his letters, prays for bodies of believers. He prays for them at the start and at the end of his letters often, and he's pleading for for God to be at work in their lives. And at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians, to the church at Colossae, in chapter one, he wrote, we have not Ceased to pray for you. Paul and the other brethren around him, he says, We are we are praying and we are not stopping praying for you. What are you praying for, Paul? He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We are praying that God would keep filling you, that you would see yourself as a a vessel in need of constant filling with the knowledge of the will of God, that he would keep teaching that to you. He would keep giving you wisdom and understanding so that you would know him. So that, he says, you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul is pleading with God. To help these Christians grow in knowing him God, fill them, keep filling them with the knowledge of yourself And he went on to say, and you encourage you to meditate on Colossians 1 9 through Down through about verse 14, that that whole section in the introduction of Colossians. Because he goes on in that passage and he speaks of the outcome of this knowledge. That as you are filled with the will of God, that, that the result of that is steadfastness and patience and joyous gratitude. Think of all the things that Paul in this one short paragraph says as as a consequence of this prayer. If if you and I are are being filled with the knowledge of God, I'm not sure we could get any better things than the things that Paul was praying for right here. That we would walk in a manner pleasing to God. That we would bear fruit that, that pleases God, that glorifies Him. That we would be steadfast. That has the idea of not being shaken, being able to stand firm and not be terrified by whatever the the next crazy thing is that that comes along in this world, still being able to stand fast on God's truth, that we would would grow in patience, in patience, that we would grow in that, in in our ability to rest in God's care and provision and to know that he is in control and we can trust that, and then that we would be filled with joyous gratitude, thanking God in, in all situations, whatever comes along. What more could we really want than those things? Live a life pleasing to God, bear fruit, be steadfast, be patient, be joyfully thankful. Those all sound pretty good. And Paul says those are the the results, the fruits of gaining the knowledge of God. It is through the knowledge of God himself. So let's be specific now. Here's the question for, for me and for you is how are you intentionally increasing your knowledge of God. What are you doing? What is your plan? What steps are you taking? Have you been taking or what, what are you planning now for this next week, this next month, that you will grow in knowing who God is, that you will grow in knowing God's justice and holiness and character and love and power and will, all of the things that are being revealed in Scripture, how Will you be purposeful to gain more knowledge in those areas, to grow in the knowledge of God? All of these things that are taught throughout the scriptures. And and, and this knowledge is essential because of what I've said is the second application, and that is in part because of the limitations of our own knowledge. The fact that we are not omniscient, and we fool ourselves by thinking that we, we know more than we do. We cannot know all things. We cannot judge the hearts accurately of other people. We can learn from books and from videos and and things that others have written. There is knowledge indeed on the internet. There are things that are are worth our time and our reading. but, But the ability to sort through those things to understand them and then apply them and to to discern then right and wrong and to understand what to do with this knowledge that we've been given, that that does not come naturally to man. That is is not who we are by nature. People who are able to to process all of this and discern right and wrong and, and, and get it and apply it and use it well, that does not come naturally because our hearts are prone to bending knowledge toward our own wants and desires and preferences. We, we tend to skew information to fit narratives that make us comfortable. Our thinking, then, is swayed by our sin, by the fact that we are in flesh. It's all part of the, the limitations of being finite, not omniscient, not omnipresent people. We cannot be all places. We cannot know all things. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking we even come close. That's why we need to keep running the things that we learn and the things that we know and our knowledge through a biblical grid. What does God say about this? What does a a gospel-centered worldview have to do with this? What, What implications from the gospel, from the saving work of Jesus Christ and him transforming my heart and now being in me, what implications come? From that, to this thing that I'm learning, to this knowledge I'm gaining? How can I apply God's truth to this crisis, to this tragedy, to this conflict? Is there a way God's truth speaks to this debate in our culture, this, this abandonment of, of what would be biblical morality and truth? Does God's truth speak to these things? How should I respond? Difficult situation when I know there are holes in my thinking. I am not omniscient. I don't have all the information. And I need to start there with that humble acknowledgement before God that I am flawed and inadequate in my thinking and I don't have all of the answers, but I believe in the one who does. I cling to the one who does. One of the, the giants of... 20th century, in fact, on into the early 21st century, one of the giants of theology during this era went to be with the Lord on Friday. J.A. Packer passed away at the age of 93. Packer has written some great works because of, of works from which we can acquire more understanding about God that help us to think about the scriptures and read the scriptures. Packer was one of those great writers, probably best remembered for his 1973 book, Knowing God, in which he, he makes this very case that we must know God. And Packer writes near the beginning of Knowing God the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There's Packer saying, of all of the things that we could pursue, science, philosophy, the highest of all of these would be that we would know God better and his will and his nature and what he does. Other subjects, Packer wrote, other subjects we can compass, we can sort of surround and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-content and we go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. For me, this is probably categories of sports. I can say, I I think I have a really good handle on this. I think I understand this. For some of you, it's movies or or literature or something like that, topics that you say, I understand that. But Packer writes, but no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. At no point can we come to the place of saying, "Eh, I know all there is to know about God. I've got them all figured out. We are not omniscient. But the knowledge of God that we gain through the teaching of his word and the help and illumination of his spirit as as his word is taught to us, as we read it, as it's counseled to us by other believers, all of that helps us to know better the mind and will of God. And that is then what makes us steadfast, patient, and filled with joyous gratitude even in the darkest and most difficult of days. Our, our knowledge is limited. It's marred by sin. We are still in bodies of flesh. We are, not, we are not omniscient. So we desperately need to grow in our knowledge of God and all that he teaches us about ourselves and our hearts in this world around us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled from the accounts in Scripture of those who reached the level of receiving your judgment and condemnation because in their arrogance, in their haughtiness, they they believed that they had ample knowledge about you and about themselves and about their world from sources and things other than you. They didn't need to hear from you. Father, we are reminded in Scripture how prone our hearts are toward this sort of arrogance. How foolishly we sometimes don't even begin to perceive our own lack of knowledge of you and yet have these inflated views that think we do. Help us, help us Father, to, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe that the Son of God gave his life as a ransom for sinners and to rest our lives fully on the, on the suffering of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection from the dead. And then, Father, through that great work of salvation and that gracious act on your part, would you then continue to grow us in the knowledge of you? Help us to, to hunger for Knowing your thoughts, your ways, your will, your plan for us, your, your description of us and our hearts. Thank you, Father, for charging us again from your word, reminding us again of our own limitations. Thank you that you are omniscient, you are omnipresent, you know us and you know our hearts. And yet, with that knowledge, yet you love us with an everlasting love those that you are saving through the gospel of Jesus Christ belong to you and our sins are forgiven and we have life and hope and peace in Christ. We are grateful. Help us this week to be purposeful and intentional about striving to know you better. Teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name.